guess who's back? Back again. So I use that joke. I was doing my M&M when uh, I was in London because, you know, I went there for, call it 25 days, back here for 10, and then back for 12. And I sent that. None of the Brits got the joke. They didn't get it. No M&M. No M&M joke. Sense of humor in London. But anyway. And we're going to have potentially M&M and Taylor Swift. (laughs) Super Bowl matchup. I mean. That's going to be awesome. The British don't like Americans. How about that? Ooh. Ooh. Wow, that was a shot across the bow. Would have been nice if you would have told me that 18 months ago. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. So I heard when I was gone, missed a big storm. Heather? Yes. Heather was her name. And um, ERCOT, I heard, held up reasonably well. And when I got back, my guy that knows all about the grid, I texted. I said, hey. Here's what I'm hearing, that West Texas wind was bad. Gulf Coast and South Texas wind, good. Batteries were actually good. Demand was the true superstar because it was 13% below expectations on Monday, 10% below on Tuesday. His take was, we got lucky, we had enough wind. ERCOT's new operating stance and winter inspections really made a difference for thermal units. Batteries need to report the state of their charge. That's something we learned this time. And the PUC aired on that, mm-hmm. but we did get lucky. So that's kind of what I heard about it. Well, you guys were here fighting it out. I mean, Where I got a Twitter war with a few few guys over this. They're saying, why are you knocking solar and wind because it actually saved your ass? I'm like, that's not the point. The point is, is that ERCOT, prioritized all these all these renewables into the grid making it more unstable instead of planning for a more resilient grid we did get so my point about heather we got lucky i'm glad wind came through to some degree um but the reality is um demand was down and that's and and you still had periods where natural gas coal and nuclear were 85 percent of the stack Yes. I saw I saw as high as ninety five percent. Yeah, and and I got notices by ERCOT like, hey, by the way, just try to re- preserve, preserve, preserve. We all, of course, everyone just cranked their heat up when that happened. Uh, unlike Yuri, at least in my experience, we didn't have really any moisture to speak of either. That's so true. Not a lot of of ice related problems to deal with. I don't know where the pockets <clears throat> in the state were, but. Um, that that seemed to help as well, at least <laughs> help me. I had texted you about what what did you do with your house, and you had the foresight to shut it off at the street and drain everything. Yeah, I, I, I was in I was across the pond, and so I did it. And Mark, real quick on the moisture issue, what are the ramifications of that of a freeze? Is it causing natural gas pipelines to freeze up? easier it's causing repair crews harder to get out because of ice well I, I think it's that and mostly you don't have the damage that you have from a bunch of ice on power lines and trees that Got are it. wreaking havoc as well so uh we didn't even have a flicker of course i'm on uh energy and miso but yeah you're not even in ericot right not even a texan you're on, in <laughs> i'm on the island do on the people peninsula. on the island think that like it's the is it sort of like the Austin syndrome? Y'all are the center of Texas. 
The woodlands is what we're talking we, about. We had a lot of inbound migration, let's just say that. <laughs> we're moving we're moving the capital to the woodlands. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. It yeah, it's the weirdest thing to look at the map and see that there's this peninsula, but it's been that way for a long time. So let's do this. So are we spiking of football that everything worked senate bill four from 2021 uh which was the response to winter storm yuri are we saying we just got lucky are we saying somewhere in between we're somewhere in between yeah i'm glad it wasn't worse that's yeah the I am too. at the mm-hmm. end of the day we're glad it wasn't worse yeah and the awareness does quite a bit if you've been through it once and ERCOT or anyone else sends out a notice to take it a little bit easier and you find ways to do that, then, you know, if the demand response was a result of of proactive notices going out saying, look, we need to kind of lighten up here Mm -hmm. where you can. My generator went off one time and I'm not sure if it was just testing, but it, it didn't go on during the normal test period. So I'm assuming my power went out for just a short period. So just saying. Well, they, to your point about awareness, too, is I think the uh, the power generators, particularly the folks using natural gas, nuclear, and kind of oops last time and probably had their A game on this time. Well, last time also you had a lot of compressed – you had the natural gas had some failures along key points. So it wasn't necessarily – the fact that they didn't have their ducks in a row, the fact that it was so cold and you had ice that some of the equipment needed to move gas around didn't work. I mean, you, on Winter Storm Yuri, you had literally folks that had coal that they were using to uh, heat, you know, natural gas pipelines yeah, and all right. that sort of stuff. And it was frozen <laughs> in. So I'm sure things like that got worked out. And the last time in winter storm, Yuri, the big nuke plant in mm-hmm. South Texas went down because there was literally one sensor. So it had a single point of failure that shut down. And so I'm sure there were two points of failure this time. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, so it, prob- it probably is somewhere in the middle. The, <laughs> the 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 other thing this just highlights that you guys will say, well, no shit, Sherlock, but I don't know that I appreciate it. If you think about the shale revolution and oil, for as much as we gripe about, it's so hard to you know get a permit and drill for a well in Texas and Montana and Oklahoma and all this. No, it's really not. It's actually really easy. You can put oil into a tank, you can pick it up with a truck, and you can get it right. to the market. To solve what we're going to need to solve mm. on the power grid, it's also interrelated. I mean, this, you know, it, it, it was wild in that parts of the state were trading for $300 per megawatt, and in Corpus Christi and Brownsville, it was trading at $20 a megawatt, and that just highlights yeah. You can generate it. You've also got to move it. You've got to have transmission lines. And I read an article about there's a, a pattern energy is trying to build the Southern Spirit line, which is basically going to pull, in effect, nuclear electricity out of Mississippi to Dallas and then send solar back the other way. And they're doing it in such a way that it's not going to be FERC regulated and it's going to be DC power and all. This is just really, really complicated. So if we're going to need yeah. more electricity, this is not going to be handled like the shale revolution was. Mm. And anyway, 
Well said, Chuck. All right. Well, that's my part of the show. I've, I've, <laughs> ta- <laughs> I've talked to enough, but uh, no. So second, the other thing I heard I missed is that uh, Mark Mills wrote a really cool piece. Mark, what was it? It's basically uh, he he published two actually one last week, early to middle part of last week. The date escapes me with an abridged version on Saturday, really calling for reform at the IEA and just looking back at the history of the IEA and why it was established, which for those who don't spend time down in the weeds thinking about the IEA, the IEA was established in response to the 74 crisis and the Arab embargo when Western governments were looking around trying to find options and and responses and finding that there wasn't really a good basis of information and data around the world. So that that really established the the objective, the raison d'etre, if you will, of the of the IA, which over the last five to ten years, as Mark points out, has morphed into one of strong advocacy for renewables and transition. And his point is it's it's really contaminating the original mission in the U.S. is the, as it always has been, the largest funder of the IEA. And basically in this last piece says, look, you got to break it up into two entities. One where the member con- countries who are paying for the advocacy get that, but we need to preserve the original aspect of the IEA that is about the best data and information and analysis on the energy here and now and what reality is. And one of the comments he made in the um, the original piece, I think, sums it up, at least his sentiment, pretty well. And I think it captures it um, pretty well. It says, the IEA, quote, is now animated by an outcome that it hopes for rather than analyzing the realities that exist. And so I think there are some, myself included, that you start to look at the data that the IEA provides and wonder about how conflicted that data and analysis is, given just the overarching, um, I think, political bent of the IEA and what it's become over the last over the last five to ten years. I mean, in the terms 1974 of- crisis taught the world that there is a need for unbiased energy information. When you, when I think most younger people, especially if you ask them what the EIA is and their ability to forecast or give unbiased information, it's it's a joke. I mean, they've become um, a very biased organization, and and I thought Mark's point was spot on, both Mark Meyer and Mark Mills. <laughs> Ooh, by the way, M squared, double entendres, M squared, two MMs, Mark squared. Um, I thought he was totally right. That was actually very poignant. He's. Mark sometimes brings some great analysis, doesn't he? <laughs> Mark squared. Mark, Mark squared. squared. You know, the interesting thing mm-hmm. I thought in kind of reading that that article was if you're intellectually honest, if you truly want what's good for the world and you want a much lower carbon footprint for the world to save it, you should want good data too. Right, because there are no there are no right choices in life. There are just trade offs that we're going to have to make, and we're going to have to be thoughtful. And each side, you know, as we talk about all the time, I mean, pe- people uh, 
that don't uh, have cheap energy in the winter freeze today. So, you know, as we're balancing things, um, as we're making all these decisions, you should want as good a well, data the good too. news, Chuck, is you don't need to go to the IEA. You need to come to Digital Wildcatters BDE. There we go. Because we deliver real energy information, which speaking of, so that was a great piece by Mark, Mark Squared. But let's go over to what Vicky um, said um, at Davos. Let's talk about sort of real energy information and, and her sort of view of what's going to happen over the next few years. Well, as as you guys know, Oxy's been pretty out front in terms of things like net zero and direct air capture mm -hmm. investments, et cetera. But I thought it was interesting that uh, this was a sideline comment. Apparently, I didn't even know Vicky was going to Davos, but here we are. Um, I mean, shit. You become CEO of an oil company. I'm going to Davos, baby. Pro pro probably the quietest Davos we've seen in a while. And we can talk about um, the political implications of that here in a minute. But she Snow, basically Snow said, "Look, we're we're in a we're in a market imbalance right now, as I think we've seen crude and products trade in a fairly sloppy fashion. The equities are out of favor again, and so we've got an abundance scenario, as Doomberg calls it." playing out currently, we've gone from tight to abundant. What Vicky said was, look, because we have so underinvested in exploration over an extended period of time, look to 2025 and beyond to be a return of tight oil markets. And I think that speaks volumes about, you know, where demand's headed and what we've seen in recent data points, despite the pronouncements by the IEA that we're going to be seeing peak fossil fuel demand within the decade. Uh, you know, Vicky's pointing out kind of the here and now, which is, look, we we haven't done an adequate job of exploration. And as I think about longer term, longer ago data, and, and just looking at global annual exploration results, haven't seen an update, and it used to be part of the BP statistical review what we're finding on a global basis is one insufficient to replace i think she quoted we're at 25 percent replacement relative to what we produce and consume every year when that used to be like five to one um i've always had a bit of a cynical view that i can create more reserves with a pencil than i can with a drill bit but <laughs> that notwithstanding you know pointing out that we've been leaning heavily on not really exploration dependent shale success, now we need to get back to the business of restarting the exploration engine globally. And, you know, we're going to be facing some shortages or at least a tighter market balance I mean, we, in 2025 and beyond in her view. She had more to say, but let's just stop for a second. When I was researching, before I started investing into the space and I researched opportunities, one of the glaring things to me was the underinvestment in exploration. And even when I joined Shell, many of my colleagues were like, you're crazy. You shouldn't invest into exploration technology and projects. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is a huge underinvestment. All the majors have been underutilized. Uh, They've been looking to buy acreage versus find acreage because it's, it's a lot cheaper to find a barrel of oil when you find it yourself, but it's also a lot harder. And... Most of the oil and gas companies have been taken the easy way. And the shale revolution almost sort of suspended this potential 
um, issue that Vicky brings up, and I think she's absolutely right. We have not been investing in exploration. It's catching up, and I think maybe 2025, it'll be interesting to see when it does. I mean, where, where's most of the capital and valuation that's <clears throat> been raised by the industry, both public and private, where has it been directed? It's been directed at unconventional shale yeah. and not making bets on exploration oriented as as we used to think about them like a you know, spinnaker comes to mind which was a long ago gulf of mexico deepwater oriented model right but you had a, a special set of capabilities and data in a business model that was supported at least to some degree by the public markets that was you know long a, a vestige of long ago which now I don't know anybody raising money around a pure kind of exploration play at this point. Yeah, you know, but what <laughs> the saying I always like is nothing cures low oil prices like low oil prices, nothing cures high oil prices like high oil prices. The interesting thing to to overlay on y'all's discussion right there is <clears throat> You know, we had really high natural gas prices, which meant we could go get these tools. We had fracking. I mean, you know, right. it's, you know, is fracking modern? No. You know what John Wilkes Booth did before he uh, shot Abra uh, Abraham Lincoln? He was a fracker. He threw dynamite down the hole. I mean, we've been fracking wells forever. We drilled, I think, our first horizontal well. I think it was actually offshore in like 1936. That's right. So we had these tools sitting out in the shed. All of a sudden we got $10, $12 natural gas. So we go get those tools. We use those tools. We figure out how to make shale works. So my question is to kind of like overlay what y'all are just saying is if we get that next spike, if we get, call it $125, $150 oil, we get $10, $12 natural gas, what it is, is there anything in the tool shed we can go get that we're going to make work? And that's something that I sit around and think of and I haven't seen. You know what I mean? You could you could put together in 2005 or 2007, you know, if we figure out this horizontal uh, drilling and this fracking that we're doing on natural gas, if we figure out for oil, we could double U.S. oil production. You could at least think about that's it. That's right. You know, that's right. I was not predicting it, or obviously I'd have been short uh, as opposed to, to to long oil that whole time. But I guess my point is I'm worried. You're worried that we're not looking for the rock. I'm worried that we don't have the tools sitting around to find the you know to mess with rock that we already know about. It's 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 another edge that, of that's, the sword. I think mean, Colin make, brings that point up is we extract so little oil from the ground as it is today as a percentage. It's mostly right. water and other things. I think that's a good point. But I also believe like there's a lot more places in this world to find oil. And and we don't have we've underinvested in the tools and technology to find it. And I think that's going to come home to roost until or I mean we're going to solve it one way or the other. But I I predict and it's funny, Vicky predicts that oil prices as a result are going to be up, you know, uh Five to five to eight dollars more this year over last year. Yeah, we averaged seventy eight last year, and eighty to eighty five is the call for twenty five. That's and her beyond call, in, which in is, the tight market, which, is which isn't which isn't a lot, but it's you know it's it's better than what we have. Are you now. predicting higher or lower than Vicky? 
I'm predicting just continued volatility, and that's the, I think spoken that's spoken like a true trader. That's yeah, the that's problem. All they care about that's the problem with establishing any kind of continuity of getting on a a path to more balance between unconventional and the opportunity presented by okay, let's move recovery factors a few percentages right. and get more of the oil in place because it's captive at short cycle. We know the resources there versus hey investor. I want you to commit, and oh, by the way, I'm expecting a premium valuation for a longer cycle business model defined as true conventional exploration, which, you know, for major projects in a major play have multi-year type of appraisal timelines, not to mention, you know, all the development risk, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You have a completely changed investor landscape from, you know, what's the terminal value of oil and gas because of the whole transition uh, dynamic in the middle of it, so I, I think it's, I think it's harder to just establish that continuity and pivot into something that Vicky's saying we know we need. We need to do a better job of and do more of what we think of as conventional exploration because that's where the big needle movers over time. Come let's see in. what her budget is next this year in exploration. Let's see what let's see if she puts her money where her mouth is. That'll be that'll uh, that'll be funny. The you know, last thing I'll I'll say on this because we talked a couple a while ago about Art Berman's piece about how and and when Ted Cross came on uh, from Novi Labs came on my podcast and we talked about it. It was you know seeing uh, performance degradation from new wells. I'm not. I've thought about this a little bit. I'm not thoroughly convinced that that's not self induced. Meaning. Got a lot of volatility in the price. I'm going to do everything I can to get 18 months worth of production out where I can hedge, lock it in. Absolutely. And so I may not have as good a well, but I have way more certainty on that well than if I potentially went with smaller frag, produced at lower volumes, mm -hmm. and drug it out over time. So I'm not, I'm sure we've drilled our best stuff first and there is a, a degradation in rock quality that we're drilling now but i'm also not sure it's not just self-induced so exxon yeah they uh they went to court sunday night five o'clock in the northern district which is a little bit of a shift from where they usually file complaints in the Southern District. But, Which but, I wish I knew a lawyer to ask the question why they did that. I found that odd, too. Northern, well, where, where, where is in, Northern, in Fort Worth. In in the, Fort in the, Worth. The, at least in the Reuters piece that I saw, there was a Hearts piece talking about Exxon filing a complaint to get uh, follow this and Arjuna Capital's resolutions for Exxon to adopt Scope 3 targets, medium-term Scope 3 targets, back in the proxy and up for a shareholder vote at the May 29th meeting. Exxon said, look, we want to use the courts to file a complaint to, I think, challenge the SEC's rulemaking in this regard and actually have the resolution removed mm -hmm. so it can't even be voted on. And their point is, look, <clears throat> at least based on the statistics, they've had similar resolutions at least over the last two annual meeting periods, the proxy periods, that last year only garnered 10% support and the year before 28%. And basically, I think what Exxon is saying, look, we've already put this to the shareholder vote. It's not in the shareholder or the company's best interest to continue to kind of flog this distraction 
Um, and Exxon is the only one of the Western majors that has not adopted scope three. And we've talked about that That's at, right. uh, before as well. So we'll see how this, they're, they're asking for a decision or relief by March 19th. I think their proxy has to be filed April the 11th. But to the point why in the Northern District as opposed to the Southern District, in the Reuters article, it's, it's, there's an opinion that this particular judge is Judge Reed O'Connor. He's always gone conservative. Been very favorable to yeah. conservative, the uh, conservative side that, of the that's argument. That's why. That's why. Here you go. I mean, hey, I was smart on their their case. I mean, so Arjuna, um, which by the way, they're known for their interest in in yoga. Which, how do they get from yoga to sustainable investing? I don't know. That's a different art discussion. But Arjuna's argument. Don't mess with their chi. I mean, they've got good chi, <laughs> clearly, but they're they're arguing that if they don't align with sort of the medium term targets in the Paris agreements, including scope three, it's in the best interest of the shareholders because they might in the future lose access to capital markets and and policy have policy interventions, which we can't prove bribe, that. we can't bribe officials anymore. Exactly. Is that what they said? Um, Exxon, on the other hand, has argued saying the sole aim of their campaign is to harm the company's existing business model, which is which makes a lot of sense. Well, this is all about, you know, the headline of the majors are not spending enough in terms of their portfolio allocation on alternatives to their core business or their core portfolio, which is oil and gas. Yeah. And we've seen over the last two to three years, the industry has really found discipline and has been ultra ultra responsive to the demand for better returns of and on capital and so mm -hmm. these are these are capital allocation decisions i think back to what mike worth said at their rollout day on new energies 2021 i believe in september and he was challenged as to why they're not committing to a chunk of wind and solar investments and he basically said we just don't we don't have the competitive position to generate returns that would make that can compete against oil and gas returns. or anything else in their in their stack of, of investments including alternatives and so uh, this goes back the the exxon goes way back um to lee raymond days but more recently this is just a continuation of the whole engine one saga but yeah. they were very very deliberate and explicit that we are not going to commit to a scope three. I mean, well, what's interesting to me is this is the first time Ex Exxon has ever tried to seek um, exclusion of a shareholder proposal through court action. So it'll be interesting to see if this is a trend do, or- Do we or know if it's ever been done before anywhere else? No idea. I do not know that. We were getting into wonky levels of SEC policy making that's kind of beyond Beyond me, the uh, the one thing I'll say is I am severely disappointed in myself. I must still be jet lagged because I was not able to make a downward dog joke during that seg segment. We were talking. <laughs> you just about did. Yoga. You just did. Well, you know, I lost my fastball, man. There was something in there. We had lawyers. We had yoga. We had environmentalists, and I couldn't make the downward dog. Anyway, the uh, I still. <clears throat> I still like because wasn't it uh, 
wasn't it Exxon that said we're a molecule company, not an electron company? Right. Yeah. So, and I, I go back to a point you've been making for, gosh, almost two years on BDE. I think you made this point when you guest hosted a long time ago that the whole point is, why should the oil and gas companies do it? Why shouldn't Apple do it? Why shouldn't Microsoft do it? You know, et cetera. Or why shouldn't I be accountable for, you know, that order I place for the redundant or the extra trip that the Amazon truck makes to my house? That's, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Exxon didn't. I should it. have done a better job of planning to not emit as much at the scope three level and, and save that fuel for a non kind of repetitive or duplicative type of situation. So. Yeah. It's it's really the you know the practicality of accounting around it for oil and gas companies and I you know I think it's fraught with all kinds of confusion at a minimum on on how we ultimately account for scope three which are arguably the largest uh, sources of emissions related to fossil fuel burning or in production and refining but it it's so dispersed out there in the consuming community that. It seems to be, um, I don't know if it's, it. once you sell that product, how, how do you adequately and accurately account for that? Yeah, there's going to be double, triple, quadruple. And I, I know there's a big modeling and factor assumption in the middle of all that. I, I think at some point you just kind of lose your place in trying to calculate the absolute kind of real numbers that you're looking for. It's very, uh, very true. And what I think what Exxon and others are telling you is that it just adds a tremendous amount of, of unnecessary cost with questionable return on, you know, good data and information that would point you toward tackling or solving the problem. It says here that companies have sued in the past, um, often involving disputes over the applicability or interpretation of Rule 14A-8 which governs the inclusion of shareholder proposals in company proxy materials. Companies may argue that a proposal doesn't meet the criteria outlined in the rules, such as falling under the ordinary business exclusion, which allows the company to omit proposals relating to its ordinary business operations, which scope three may fall right into that. Um, so <clears throat> interesting to see. We'll see what happens. All right, we talked uh, Vicky's um, stuff in Davos. Give me a point or two about Davos because I thought it was great. Y'all know what I'm referring to? The Argentinian? The, yeah, the milieu speech. Oh, my God, it was awesome. Describe what happened there. <laughs> so he basically got up there and channeled his inner Milton Friedman and just told the whole world they're fucked because they're a bunch of socialist pigs. and he. Felt like he was almost calling them out by name. Yeah. And it was great. He said that free markets, capitalism is the only way to uh, survive. And he let them have it. And the single greatest thing about that speech is he flew their commercial, right, to do it. No Brilliant. private, no private jet. Number two, he, the fact he would even say it. I'll give Klaus some credit for even inviting him, though, because he knew he, knew he, he was going to get that. And then three, the greatest thing about it was the AI voice translator that put it into English in his voice. That was awesome. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like you could lip read his speech in English yeah. with that voiceover. It was it was perfect. A little yeah. scary, but 
The uh, an- another good thing that happened that I think is slightly underreported, and I'm going to get the guy's name wrong. I think it's Kenneth Roberts, who's CEO of the Heritage Foundation. He was included in a panel talk, and he lectured the world elites on being undemocratic and destroying the planet. So you had a couple of good shots coming out of it. I think they probably expected some the you know the organizers and Schwab probably expected some of this just given what's happened on the global political scene here in the last few months with Milieu and and what happened in in the Dutch election etc so um and then heading into what's going to be a very interesting 2024 election here in the US um there are real energy security and policy implications at the heart of all of this and so there's you know there's they're starting to see signs of pushback at the at the ballot box that i think you know are likely to continue uh, although this is but one election cycle and short memories have a way of taking over as soon as another distracting event takes place but it just feels like fundamentally that um People have been absorbing quite a bit of, of extra costs, and they're starting to link that politically to uh, to, to some of the, the top-down mandates, et cetera, that have been worked into policy by the unelected. So the thing I'll say about Donald Trump, you can like Donald Trump, hate Donald Trump, but I don't think there's been another politician in my lifetime so attuned to what I will say, the common man, as Donald Trump. Say what you want about the guy. The guy the guy understands mm-hmm. the frustration of the factory worker who lost his job because the factory moved to Mexico. And Donald Trump will tell him, don't worry, I'm going to tax the hell out of the Ford if they move the auto plant down to Mexico and all. I mean, he really does mm-hmm. understand and I think has a way of communicating with the common man that's on par with anything I've seen. Even he has said, day one issue, immigration, we're going to shut the border. But number two, it's been drill, baby, drill. So, I mean, the fact that Donald Trump is leading with that on a day one event says you're right, Mark. People are starting to get it. Yeah, and I I still somewhat bristle at the notion when I hear politicians from either side talk about, you know, we, we need to get back to energy independence. Right. We had record levels of production last year in September and, and October, 13.2 million barrels a day. And we're seeing a, a bit of a flattening, but you know, this notion that there's going to be some political watershed moment with a new administration that's alt- ultimately going to change the pace and level in production trajectory that is largely driven by investors, both both public and private, and those companies responding to or not responding to the incentives and disincentives to invest capital or return capital to shareholders. Um, We're doing a pretty good job with our kind of restrained level of activity, rig counts down, what, 20 plus percent since September, et cetera. Um, where it goes from here, we'll see. But um, it's 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 I don't I don't know if naive is the right word. 
the, the the energy industry, particularly in the U.S., works in a very different way than what the political voices are suggesting that it does. That short-term policy has had a major um, detrimental effect or a major incentivizing effect. I just don't. I don't think that that's that's the case. We're we're playing in a global market and all of the commodities, including natural gas now. And, you know, we, we have an industry, as I said, that's largely driven by a lot of independent de- decisions that are driven by um, investors on the front end of all that. And it's not necessarily, we, we talk about energy independence, but it's not necessarily, that's, that's an inaccurate phrase to some degree. It's almost take the handcuffs off of the local producers and let them number one export like you know we're talking about lng but there's a lot of refineries for example built on the gulf coast that import oil because the oil that we take out of the ground here they can't refine that the refines were built for importing they're not going to turn those around or change them but ultimately what we're saying here is let our let the oil the energy companies let their economics go unlimited. Let them be able to do whatever they can to maximize their business, which is ultimately saying, make the United States business friendly again. That's one of the big challenges is, is all the, uh, the, the the requirements and the inability, you know, we're talking about uh, Toby Rice up in the uh, up in Appalachia. Now, where, where is he going to uh, send the gas, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot of things that, um, Trump is promising that has opened a lot of people's ears. Well, there, there's all kinds of regulatory reform, and you you did a a, a podcast recently on one of the oldest mm-hmm. kind of. Um, We're talking about what's, the shipping. What's the right the term? Jones the Jones Act. Act. The, the Jones, Jones Act, Act, baby. And nineteen twenty. And and detrimental decisions like things like closing down Everett, right, and not being able to connect <clears throat> northeastern. The, the Northeastern Endowment of Natural Gas to New England is- And not allowing me to buy alcohol on Sundays. Yeah. I mean, that's a big issue. <laughs> that really is. The, the, the one thing I think I will say in defense of politicians, because energy is a pretty complex uh, event, when they, when they talk about energy independence, if they phrased it this way, they might be closer to right and I do think at the end of the day, it matters is we could at least be independent if we wanted to be, you know, if you think about it, if we, if we got rid of regulations and stuff, we're drilling a lot, we have a lot of production, we could be, if need be, it would take a lot of investment, replumbing, and just the threat of that, that's I think right. that's keep, right. I, I think I think keeps look keep, would, would changes we, the geopolitical balance. But I think could we yeah. theoretically mm-hmm. Refit the refining complex to take much more domestic production. Yeah, sure. But that's reversing tens of billions that were spent in the 2000s to make sure that we had the most complex system in the world because the future was going to be heavy sour. Right. That's, I, that's not what that's happened. Right. That's right. right. And I think that the other bigger question, and this really goes to Mark, is when is the woodlands going to become energy independent? <laughs> But but also, when are y'all going to build a wall? 
I already have the Hardy Toll. It's a long fucking way up there. Yeah. It's not a wall, but you know, it's it's always when someone has to come that way. It's it's always an almost intolerably long trip. You already have a wall. It's just yeah. called distance. It's <laughs> called time and distance. It well, is. one of the things that we have talked about, we talked about Trump, but we're talking about this is the year of of voting, isn't it? Yeah, on a global scale, Chuck. So. The girlfriend, we need to give credit, challenged us like we did last year on BDE where we went through Europe and we broke down each country and talked about their energy usage and decided not to treat Europe as a uniblock and instead dive into some detail. <clears throat> she read an article and pointed out, in 2024, seven out of the 10 most populous nations will go to the polls. Bangladesh, India, USA, Indonesia, Pakistan, Russia, Mexico, some geopolitically strategic countries, Taiwan and the UK. Also, some interesting energy companies are going to have votes. The Congo, which technically happened December of this last year, but we'll we'll need to talk about it. Mozambique, Mm -hmm. the European Parliament, and Azerbaijan. So... Almost 2 billion people in 70 countries are going to vote this year. Um, And layer on top of that, we've got AI now that pops up. What will that do to elections? Watching what China's doing, the Belt Road Initiative, et cetera, all the stuff we've been talking about here, precious metals and the like. So it's going to be a really interesting year. So her suggestion to us was, each BDE close with two or three minutes on some of these countries, the elections, and maybe how those could impact energy. And and when we talk about a country, you have to bring a food from that country to oh, let's BDE. Do that. I like that because we'll have a cultural experience experience as well. I love that. Let's do that. No, so I'll, maybe next time we'll do the Congo, and uh, <laughs> I'll be in charge of food. <laughs> so there there was one that I I picked up that's that's in this this mix of politics i see she's got listed for april india mm-hmm. which is out this past week talking about doubling coal production yeah by 2030 to 1.5 billion tons and adding another 88 gigawatts of thermal power by 2032 which you know, the opposition will say, that's not what we agreed to at COP28, et cetera. But what you're seeing is, in in some ways, policies that are um, being driven by and being, being designed to um, create stability and a sense of political well-being in your home country. India being, I think, a really good example of that, just given the that the vast majority of their power production is is coal and looks to be for the foreseeable future. It's, the che- it's their cheapest form of energy by far. Yeah, and they're they're not the only ones either. I mean, Indonesia's got a tremendous amount of, of coal endowment, and we've talked about that. And Politicians don't get reelected if people freeze. That's correct. Yeah. I think as Dan said coming out, Dan Pickering said coming out of COP28, you have a lot of dancing around, talking about, and agreeing to things, and then you kind of go home and you do what you want. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, in my in my mind, India is a, a good example of really just doing what you want because it's, I think, political politically inadvisable to do 
things that create. It's just a basically real fancy and, cocktail and, party. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, So I had two meetings when I was over in London just with folks that friends with on LinkedIn, a really sharp young um, uh, petroleum engineer for one of the big companies and an investor relations guy for a company that has assets in Africa. And both of them through separate conversations mentioned if the West is going to say to developing countries, let them eat cake, i.e. you guys don't get cheap energy like we do, that's not going to end well. Completely agree. Exactly. All right, BDE, Wildcatters, thank you for joining us this week. Wait a minute. Oh. We, we, we got to hear about the Cowboys. I thought we were going to freaking miss this. But first, before that, I have, uh, with a heavy heart, one of my um, idols, which I don't have idols, but I looked up to him as a child all through my life, uh, has passed away. Jackie Burke Jr., who was 100 years old, uh, passed away on January 19th. Um, legend. I saw him um, not so many days ago i got to say goodbye in some ways um great man he won the masters he's won the pga championship he won 16 tournaments and he was a great leader of champions golf club where i where i uh play golf um he's gonna be well missed um there's been some great um people coming out and talking about jackie burke stories but he will be missed in the city of houston and in the golf world so Rest uh, in peace. Rest in peace, Jackie. So, digital wildcatters. Oh, just say it. Go ahead. You can break me. Uh, now break we can me talk up. about you, you can the break Dallas team. What are they called? The like, Woodlands follow Dallas because you're closer than than the Texans. I, I think it's a coin toss for most people. It's not yeah. not for me. But. You do fly out of Love Field, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the deal with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, it does seem like Tony Romo and Dak Prescott appear to be the same guy. <laughs> and I love Romo. I actually think Romo's greatness is undershadowed by the fact the team never did that well. There was actually not a lot of talent on those Dallas teams and the fact he would get them to the playoffs. But anyway, I just – McCarthy's gone 12-5, and five, you know, three years in a row, which normally – you'd build a statue to somebody that did that, but the disappointing ends to each one of those <clears throat> playoff games where he just appears outmatched. You know, the teams aren't ready to play. I don't know how you bring um I don't know how you bring him back to coach. Uh the one rumor I've heard is that Bel Belichick just said word, no way. I'm not dealing with the uh the mess, but you had Drabel who's uh You don't want to live in Dallas or or deal with you Jerry, don't want to deal Jerry, with Jerry Jones. Jer deal with Jerry Jones. Mike Grable or Vrabel. Vrabel, uh, who's in effect built Belichick light and by all intensive purposes a really great coach. What about Harbaugh? Harbaugh. He's he's, he's going to the NFL. Everyone knows it. Just, he is. Where's he going? He seems like he's spending a lot of time talking to San Diego. Yeah. yeah. That's, or excuse me, the Chargers, which are now in LA, much to Mike Umbro's chagrin. Yeah, which is arguably I'd, the best quarterback situation out there if you're a coach. My my new 
old favorite NFL coach, though, and I haven't spent a lot of time watching the NFL over the last several years. But the exchange prior to the game in Detroit between a reporter who they have not shown or named yet asking Todd Bowles, the head coach of Tampa (laughs) Bay, how he was planning to prepare his team for the frigid temps in Detroit. (laughs) This is great. And he looks at the reporter and says, you do know we play indoors. (laughs) (laughs) For fifty years, it's not like they've built. Yeah, they've been playing. They've been playing indoors in in the Silver Dome and Ford Field for the last fifty years. And he said, "You know, it'll be about twenty seconds from the time we get off the bus and get into the stadium. So I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal." <laughs> but these blue collar teams, I love their outdoor stadiums. You got Green Bay, you got like Buffalo. Their fans are are. I mean, they're more rabid and incredible because. The they Buffalo have to sit in the fans elements. showing up the shovels and the it's you know. amazing. So, so I, I think went, Detroit so, is just weak for that reason. So I was in Cleveland, Cleveland. and this was this was years ago. Um, gosh, it might have been pushing fifteen years ago. It was a Thursday night game. They were playing the Steelers. It was supposedly the coldest night of the rivalry. And Municipal Stadium sits right there on the lake, and it feels like every ounce of wind comes down picks up as much cold water and moisture and just Throws flies right over the stadium so it's freezing cold mike Hines, my business partner was smart enough to drink wild turkey that night so he was yeah. fine i drank beer i froze from the inside out uh but two two observations from that night one generally speaking the working class ticket season holders of the browns can buy one jersey in their life so when you buy that jersey, you then put tape across the back and change the player's name. <laughs> you change their numbers with tape because you can't afford to go buy the the next nice jersey. And so just seeing all of the old Cleveland Browns players, like a Jim Brown jersey that's been changed through the years, the different stuff was priceless. Number two, happiest guy I've ever seen in my life was literally out there in shorts no shirt on, drinking away, and he passed out halfway through the game, and everybody just left him in the stadium. It's crazy. <laughs> but anyway. All right, BDE, we will uh, rush out to the prayer vigil to pray for Colin and his injured prostate, and hopefully it'll get well and he'll join us again. Thanks for watching.